Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for joining us as we get ready to head into the new year. We've lined up a couple of our favorite interviews this week, ones we hope will bring you some holiday cheer or at least some mayoral cheer, Marisa. (laughs) That's right. We've got two interviews with mayors of major California cities for you. They stretch from both ends of the state. Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles and Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff right here in the Bay. And we're going to start with Mayor Schaff, uh, who we talked to about growing up in Oakland, the lessons she learned from her predecessor in the mayor's office, and her work with Governor Newsom on the state's homelessness crisis. Here's some of that interview. So let's go back a little bit. Usually we start with childhood. It's a little bit of a, I don't know, not therapy session, but we want to know where you came (laughs) from. And as it turns out, you came from Oakland. You're an Oakland local. You grew up in the city, went to high school and uh, graduated from an Oakland uh, school, went to college, I think, in Florida. But tell us about your family. You came from, it sounds like a very working class kind of family. Your dad was a shoe salesman, I think. Yeah, my dad was a traveling shoe salesman. Um, you know, he back when there were mom and pop stores, he drove in his uh, Oldsmobile because it had the biggest trunk so he could fit all his samples. Uh, and then my mom was a stewardess, um, although she uh, d- didn't work while we were young kids, although later she went on to run the volunteer program at Children's Hospital. Um, and my you mom- You have siblings? I do. I have an older sister, Chris. Hi, Chris. She uh, hopefully she's adopting a dog right now from the (laughs) Oakland (laughs) Animal Shelter. I think that's where she is. Um, But, you know, my mom was from Naperville, Illinois, and she grew up at a time when that that town was completely monoculture. Uh, Everyone was white, of German descent, Lutheran, you know, just no diversity at all. And she loved Oakland. She loved it. And one thing I really remember growing up in our house, aside from the fact that she would just drag me along to, like, every volunteer activity, cleanup, 
park beautification, you know, everything mm-hmm. that now I have to lead. <laughs> um, she helped start something called Festival at the Lake. And it was on the shores of Lake Merritt. And it was a true celebration of just how multicultural Oakland is. African dance troops followed by folklorico, followed by Chinese opera, you know, Indian fry bread next to Flint's barbecue. I mean, it just, um, you know, Ethiopian food. It, It just was such a delight for her. And I certainly caught that bug and just grew up so, as we say in Oakland, hella proud to be from the town. Did you, I mean, did you think that you would come back always? Like, I know you left for college and law school. I mean, was it it pulling you back? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents thought it was um, important to go to college in a different part of the country. And boy, uh, did I learn that. that, Yeah. (laughs) Oakland's a little bit of a bubble. Um, I went to a small college in central Florida. Oh, wow. That is different. Yeah. No, I thought that my politics were kind of moderate compared to my friends. I learned that my classmates thought I was a communist. So, you know, it just everything is relative. Um, Mm -hmm. You understand how people get elected president, which is a complete mystery to you if you grow up in Oakland. But yeah, I was ready to come back pretty quickly. Before you left, you were really big, I think, as it was your mom as a troop leader in the Girl Scouts. Yeah, no, I'm I'm so appreciative to Girl Scouting. I feel like it really, um, for all girls, gives you a sense of leadership and a deep sense of service and just how satisfying it is to help others. And I was looking, you seemed like you had as a service project, you challenged other Oakland Girl Scout troops to raise funds at for the Oakland Zoo to buy an incubator for baby spider monkeys. Wow, you have dug deep. Now, was that because you love the spider monkeys so much, or was that just what they needed at that moment? <laughs> you know, I spent one summer volunteering at the Oakland Zoo. Oh, nice. Um, and, you know, zoo. it was really great. I got to, like, you know, feed uh, the llama, baby llama its bottle. I got to play with a baby Bengal tiger, and I scooped a lot of poop. A lot of poop. Ocelot poop is the worst. But that's how sure I that's dis- come in handy. <laughs> Yeah, no. Now that I'm a politician, one would argue <laughs> that's that. That's what I mean. Yeah, got it, got it. But um, but yeah, that's how I got the idea for the Girl Scout project, and it was it was really empowering as a high school student to get every troop from Oakland to show up to see what you can accomplish when you ask people. So it sounds like your parents weren't political, but they were big into public service. Yes. Um, It also sounds like you had a little bit of a performance bug as a child. You were a cheerleader, and I think uh, I I, I saw something about you uh, performing guys and dolls in uh, high school and stuff. What was was your, like, extracurricular activities like besides Girl Scouts? Oh, yeah. No, I loved being a dancer, and I've got to give a great shout-out to Miss Duke. Katz, Elise Ducats, my Skyline High School dance teacher. Um, I have to tell you, when I decided to run for my first political office, uh, when I ran for city council, I think like eight members of the cast of Guys and Dolls at Skyline <laughs> High School, 1982, showed up at my campaign kickoff. Like the friends you make in theater and mm-hmm. through dance are the ones that you keep forever. And later, when I decided to run for mayor, Miss Ducats showed up, and I'm I'm trying to to be very mayoral and you know give my stump speech. And she raises her hand and she says, "I want everyone to know that Libby has always been a risk taker. When she had to <laughs> choreograph her senior piece for our dance program, she choreographed herself jumping off this high scaffolding." 
and being caught in the arms of her dancers below. And she's always been someone to take big leaps. Wow. So, what yeah. a, like vote of confidence. <laughs> from your t- I actually just went to my 20 year reunion and had my uh, history teacher say, I listen to you on the radio. So, nice. I mean, that must be pretty exciting for, for people like your teachers to it's, see you. It's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, there are also moments where I look out at the uh, audience and I see people that probably, you know, change my diaper. So <laughs> that, that can be kind of humbling as well. Cool. <laughs> so you, I think, ran for the city council in 2010 mm-hmm. and then ran for mayor, got elected in 2014. But, and then somewhere in there, you worked for Jerry Brown when he was mayor before that. Um, you were like a top aide. You'd worked for, I think, for Ignacio de la Fuente first, and then you worked for Jerry Brown in City Hall. What was it like working for Jerry Brown? <laughs> I learned a lot from Jerry. Um, some, in some ways, I try and emulate him. In other ways, I'm different. Uh, he was so laser focused. You know, he had his priorities. He got them done. He was unafraid. Um, he was intellectual. He was funny. Um, he was a great public speaker. Audiences just ate out of his hand. Uh, he was also hard to work for. Man, he did not know what a weekend or an evening was, which I, I have to confess, I now am that kind of boss, too. Was that before <laughs> he was married? It was, although I have to say he and Anne were together. Mm. And, um, well, she's kind of a workaholic, too. Oh, wife, she, she yeah. is the funniest person yeah. alive. She has very the driest yeah. sense of humor. And um, their kind of courtship was really kind of cute to watch. Like, they really, really love each other. Yeah. So you're on the city council, and Jean Kwan gets elected. There's that sort of crazy... A rank choice voting election where everyone sort of thought Don Parada was going to win, then Jean Kwan wins. And let's just say she struggled as mayor. Um, and I'm wondering, what did you, as, as a city council member, what did you pick up? What did you learn from her failures, you know, when you became mayor? Um, you know, I have so much respect for Jean Kwan. She is an incredibly hard worker. I'd say on a policy level, we are in complete agreement. Um, and she's very ethical. But to be the mayor is a particular skill set, and it's hard. And your communication skills and your ability to make really hard and unpopular decisions in a hard moment. And she, um, I think, had you know more than her fair share of crises, particularly with Occupy Oakland. Although I would say I got my, more than my fair share as well. All right. I feel like we cannot end this without asking you a question about homelessness. It is a huge issue, not just in Oakland, but around the state, but particularly in Oakland. I, I, I just want to ask like, how you think that the state and the city should be working together moving forward to really tackle this. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm honored that the governor uh, asked me to be on his council of advisors. And uh, I think it's just so important that we not just talk about shelter, although that's important. We've got to prevent homelessness to begin with. We have got to create and maintain an adequate supply of housing that is affordable and safe and healthy and stable for everyone. And there is a whole lot of work to do to attack that bigger problem. It's so important people see that the explosion of homelessness is not so much around the traditional issues that we think of, like mental health and drug addiction. It is about the unacceptable cost and availability of housing. That was Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf speaking with Marisa and me earlier this year. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to bring you our interview with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And on this holiday week, we're revisiting two of our favorite interviews from the past year. That's right. We're going to now head down to Los Angeles, where we met with Eric Garcetti earlier this year to talk about what he calls his Jutino heritage. I love every time I say that, I crack up. What it was like growing up watching his dad as district attorney during the O.J. Simpson trial and his work on L.A.'s own Green New Deal. All right. Here's some of our interview. So your dad, of course, Gil Garcetti, was the uh, district attorney uh, when you were a young man, I think. Uh, yeah, right after college. Yeah. It was, was DA. The, uh, his office prosecuted uh, OJ. There were other, some other big high-profile issues. But going back even further, your dad's side of the family has a really interesting heritage. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and the Mexican revolutionary uh, person in your, in, your, uh, in your family as well. So, so I joke, I'm the, I'm the Jutino hiding in plain sight. I think a lot of people <laughs> think I'm just Italian-American and I'm proud of those roots. I think I'm 8% Italian. But really, the simplest way to understand my cultural heritage is my father's side of the family. Both his mother and father spoke Spanish first, came from Mexico, and their parents came from Mexico. My mother's side is Jewish. So I'm this kind of uh, uh, kosher burrito, uh, as we used to sell across the street here from City Hall. A mix of these two cultures, both immigrant, refugee uh, past. My grandfather was the most recent to come to America when he was one-year-old baby, carried in the arms of his mother, my great-grandmother, during the Mexican Revolution. My great-grandfather was killed. She carried him over the border um, with resonance to today, as I see children and babies being separated from right. their parents, realizing that if this country had somehow separated them or not allowed them in, I wouldn't be here today. But he fought in World War II, became a citizen, became a union barber. Um, my father was the first to graduate from college, grew up in South LA. My mom uh, was a generation ahead, though her parents grew up poor. Her father had great success as a suit manufacturer, was actually the tailor to President Johnson um, at one I point. I understand until he made until a political he, uh, statement. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. So Harry Roth, who ran Lewis Roth clothes, uh, was lucky enough to become uh, President Johnson's tailor, but was opposed to the Vietnam War and had to make a decision. Do I speak out about that and lose my best client, or do I stay quiet and stay as the tailor? wasn't a tough choice. He spoke out, took out a full page ad in the New York Times saying, get out of Vietnam, don't run for re-election. My wife and I would like to contribute to your retirement financially. Made national news and obviously he didn't make another suit in the White House, but it really gave me that lesson, you stand up for what you believe in. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, it seems like obviously you have deep ties to both sides, but what, mm -hmm. growing up, were you bar mitzvah? Were you speaking Spanish at home? Like, how did that sort of play out in your did childhood? Did you speak from the Torah in <laughs> yeah. Spanish? Exactly, a Spanish Ladino, I sometimes <laughs> joke it. Well, on Saturdays, I might have, you know, bagels and, and locks at home, and then Sundays at my um, my grandparents' house, we'd have, you know, menudo and, and uh, Mexican food. I felt fluid in both. It just seemed normal. Um, I 
was raised in a pretty unreligious family. So I kind of came to Judaism myself later. My parents let me by my choice go to Jewish camp. I wasn't bar mitzvahed until I was an adult later on in life. Um, and definitely now identify religiously as Jewish. Um, but culturally felt Latino, spoke Spanish with my grandparents, okay. learned my accent from them, um, and felt their stories as a central part of who I am. I didn't have to pick between cultures. It was just who Eric Garcetti was. And a very L.A. story. Yes, absolutely. In that way. Um, so, and speaking of, I mean, your dad, even before he was district attorney, mm -hmm. was a prosecutor. You grew yes. up in that world. Um, this, you know, was the time of tough on crime laws mm -hmm. and um, Rodney King and, and a lot of really uh, strife in L.A. and elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, how much of that did he bring home? Did he talk about his job? We, we talk, you know, he was a line prosecutor growing up. He wasn't really a politician. So people think I grew up with politics. He made a conscious decision, even though he and my mom were active in Eugene McCarthy's campaign for president in 1968 to not run for office because he had seen a great man's kind of family life fall apart. And he said, I'm not going to do that to my kids. So he waited till my sister and I were graduated from college. That said, of course, we talked about cases. He headed up the first consumer fr fraud uh, unit. He laid and did cases there and later on headed up the first unit going after cops for police brutality and public officials who crossed lines. So I grew up with an understanding that it was so important to hold everybody accountable. and. You know, it's funny looking back in those days, which were, the, especially in this state, tough on crime, three strikes. He was one of the few district attorneys to oppose three strikes. Oh, really? He was one of the few people who, when he saw the OJ trial, he said, I'm going to bring domestic violence to the forefront. And though the case didn't result in a victory, it really was the awakening in America about domestic violence being a serious crime. And he was one of the first DAs to say, let's invest in crime prevention, putting prosecutors out there to work with juveniles long before they entered the system so that they could be um, kept away from a lifetime of serving time. And so, you know, for me, yeah, we talked about it all the time, but he was a progressive prosecutor before people were talking that way. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer, and I'm here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest is L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. You know, I think, uh, obviously, you're, as we said, your uh, father was the DA when O.J. was prosecuted, and he was acquitted, ultimately. Um, you were a young man at that time, so you weren't around. But what did you take from that in talking with him and observing it, you know, from afar? A few things. I mean, one was, again, just like with my grandfather, it's important to stand up for what you believe in, whether it's someone's innocence, someone's guilt, or the issues surrounding it, like domestic violence uh, in this case. Second was you have to, in politics, um, do more than just think you're doing the right thing. You have to be very aware of how you're communicating coming across. I remember that one day when he said, you know, OJ, turn yourself in. And people come up to me and say, God, your dad's a hard ass, isn't he? Like, he's like this tough prosecutor. I'm like, he's the most loving, like, hugging, beautiful father a person could ever have. And I know him in that personal way, but I realize people's perceptions come from maybe one moment in time. So when that camera's on, you better be aware. You better humanize who you are. You better not put on a show, but really find those opportunities like we have now to tell your story, to be honest, and never be afraid, one last thing, to say where you screwed up. I mean, my dad's now, uh, he put people on death row. And after he became, after he was district attorney, he realized it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't serving us, it wasn't serving the family's victims. And he became a very passionate uh, ex-prosecutor against the death penalty. So I've learned a lot of lessons from him to always question the way you're doing things, to always admit your mistakes, and to always look at trying to stand up for things even in the face of criticism. So 
You had, I think, um, always excelled in school and were a serious student. You played the jazz piano. Um, I see that piano over there. We might yeah, ask you to play. We might that. need a few play lines. Play uh, thing. New, new theme song. <laughs> we'll get it. For, we'll get you the sheet music. Okay. I mean, what? And then you went to Columbia University, mm -hmm. which is a very different experience than yeah. probably than growing up in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about a little bit like what your college experience was like and what at that point you thought your mm. future would look like? Because I understand you were very serious into music at the time. Yeah, you know, I was composing musicals, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein and Hart. The only time the three of them wrote together and where they met was at Columbia when they were students, this thing called the Varsity Show. I was acting. I wanted to go to New York because I thought maybe I'd want to be an actor and I'd done some after school specials as a teenager. Um, on TV and you know that was a part of it but I stayed very engaged in human rights and the world and part of the reason I decided to go to New York is I couldn't imagine myself outside of a big city and I wanted to see that other big city and if you remember I got there in 1988 was there till 1993 those were really tough times in New York uh, Columbia likes to say it's in Morningside Heights but it's essentially Harlem and you would go a block away there were, were homeless folks there was needles in the park so I got very engaged with the issue of homelessness and housing founded actually with um, the later NAACP, uh, head of NAACP, Ben Jealous, one of my dear friends, uh, a Harlem Restoration Project where we'd go in and actually build low-income housing in burned out former crack houses. And a combination of that and being in a city where the United Nations was and seeing the connection between international human rights and domestic, I pretty much knew by the time I graduated, as much as I loved music, I was probably gonna be heading into some sort of human rights work uh, in my life. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it strikes me that you really were like that geopolitical frame was mm -hmm. really your early adult life. I mean, you taught, you studied yeah. abroad, you were a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, went to Ethiopia. Yeah. yeah, I went to Ethiopia. I lived in Burma. I worked with the rebels that were in Burma at the time, fighting for democracy and, and teaching in the jungle, in the middle of a war zone. And then went to Ethiopia, where I'd been as a teenager, where I'd done some relief work um, shortly thereafter in, in Eritrea in 1995 and 97, right after their independence, looking at issues of ethnicity and um, how do you kind of get the development of a community uh, that now has its independence. And, you know, it was funny when I came back and was teaching international relations and decided to run for city council because people said, uh, right. aren't you doing this international stuff? And I, I said, have you looked at LA? Have you looked at California? We are international relations. Did you ever think of running for, you know, or doing something that would take you more in that direction? Yeah, I thought I would probably work maybe in diplomacy or international development. And having done enough of that, I came back to L.A. and fell back in love with the city. But I had been, even though I'd only been gone for uh, undergraduate and graduate school in New York and then England, um, after seven and a half, eight years, it was a new city to discover. And I lived in a new part of town with um, my now wife, uh, and we were dating at the time. She's from Indiana, and as I joke, this other foreign country called Indiana. She, <laughs> she was a real foreigner coming here, and she got involved working at the county department of of uh, public uh, social services um, and working on welfare issues and poverty. And I really fell in love with the city and realized the entire world was already here. I didn't need to seek it out there. And it makes me fluent when I'm in other parts of the world to have come from here right. and vice versa. It makes me feel very much at home and in the world when I'm in LA. I mean, LA is a million things, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I always laugh when people say, I don't like LA or right. whatever. It's like, which, which, part? which, which, which little part? piece? Yeah, find another one, you'll like it. Well, you mentioned your wife. I know you guys mm -hmm. met on the mm -hmm. plane ride over to be Rhodes yes. Scholars and um, 
you know, your relationship progressed. And then you guys ended up fostering a bunch of children and eventually mm-hmm. adopting your daughter, Maya. Mm-hmm. Is that, Maya she's seven yeah. now? She's Eight. seven. What was that experience? I mean, first of all, I guess, did when she, it, it sounds to me like she initiated the fostering mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Was that something that came naturally to you? I mean, that's a big, yeah. it's a big thing to do. It's, it's the most wonderful thing I've done in my life. And I love that Amy wanted to do this. She grew up in a family with half and step and foster siblings. Um, she had kind of more of a hard knock upbringing than I did her. Um, sometimes she had a single mother raising her, other times not great stepfathers. And um, I think for her, it was really important that uh, we help those kids that don't have homes. And I was game. I mean, I certainly led her on this pathway where she enthusiastically said, okay, you want to run for office? As crazy as that life is, she was 100% supportive in one of my you know, closest, if not the closest advisor I have on this, um, on, in this life. Secondly, she kind of was looking at um, the issues she was dealing with in welfare and realized that so much of this comes down to what we do early on in children's lives. Um, so we've been really proud to, and well, we don't go into detail about how many or what age of kids just to protect the privacy. We've, we've had a, you know, an experience from day one to late teenagers and um, really keep in touch as part of an extended family of this wonderful gift of being foster parents. Yeah. Apparently your wife uh, compares you to the character uh, on Wreck and Park, uh, Leslie Nope. Uh, <laughs> no, no, what does that is. mean? No, oh, she is. Leslie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah, what does that mean? Is. Well, I, she's this a, is Amy, the Amy Poehler well, character, she, of course. Maybe she did. Uh, <laughs> I think she was talking I was. about you. As... Just kind of, I, I think she might have. You're right. I, I think she thinks I'm an endless optimist. Um, <laughs> That, you know, in the face of people yelling at you about something, you smile and say, hey, let's do something together. Let's figure out a way to move forward. Um, even though I'm from Los Angeles, I think she connected with that kind of Midwestern sensibility. For me, it's just this relentless optimism. It's what fuels me, as, as well as a resilience of knowing things don't change overnight. I govern not looking at the headlines of today or the criticisms of tomorrow. I think, where am I going to be 10 years from now looking back? on what I'm doing today and did I do the right thing? I mean, I think your critics might say there's a downside to that too. Mm -hmm. I know you have been criticized as being risk averse, being too much of a consensus builder, um, maybe not always willing to spend political capital. Like, do you think those are fair? No, I always reject them. I think those are the stupid criti- most stu- stupid criticisms because, first of all, I have stood up on plenty. You know, raise the minimum wage when even our own labor community and certainly our business community is saying, no, wait or don't do it at all. Uh, the largest infrastructure initiative in American history times two with Measure M months before my reelection, putting everything on the line. I stand up and fight when I need to. But what I learned uh, on the city council for 12 years and a city council president, as much as some members of the media, some people in the public thirst for a fight and it fulfills them, People out there don't want to see blood spilled. They want to be served. They want their lives to be improved. They don't want it to be about the drama. I mean, look at the White House. All right, I want to talk about one thing. We have a few minutes left that you've been doing, which is um, a Green New Deal for Los Angeles. And I think that, like, this speaks to both um, the optimism you're talking Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. and some of the -the on-the-ground, like, political realities. So this is a a broad sort of an economic Mm -hmm. environmental plan sets out to make LA carbon neutral by 2050 and benchmarks along the way. and just this week, I believe, uh, this big solar project yes, did get approved mm-hmm. by the Department of Water and Power, right? Yes. On Tuesday, yeah. Um, this would be the cheapest solar power in the U.S. Um, it, it came after several commissioners didn't weigh in before yeah. um, ostensibly for pressure from the union. Um, Maybe, or there was some question of whether we had checked out all the boxes okay. of consultation 
and we made sure we had, so that's how we got a unanimous But broadly, vote. you've gotten yep. a lot of pushback from IBEW, the local um, union, mm -hmm. around, you know, closing coal-fired plants. And I mean, to me, this just strikes me as sort of the crux of the challenge for Democrats when they talk about the environment and climate change is like how not to scare people, yep. essentially. Um, I guess to start, can you just talk about like what what you think of the criticisms that sure. this is going to, you know, take away good paying jobs and sort of result in a setback? Yeah. There are two things that are causing human beings anxiety right now. One, will the world exist and be able to sustain life as we know it? And two, if it does, will there be a place in the future economy for me? Right. So these two things collide here together, but they shouldn't collide. And I'm very confident and very optimistic that they won't, even if you have growing pains along the way. The 2020s will either make or break human civilization as we know it. We have now made the promises. I founded climate mayors, 425 mayors across the country, Democrats and Republicans and independents, who have pledged Paris. I'm vice chair of C40, the global group. And at the local level, it's where we are getting that job done. And I think that we have to continue to say to folks, if you want a job, don't even look at this from the environment. This is where jobs are going to be. Let's figure that out together from Appalachia to Los Angeles. And secondly, imagine if we had a billion climate refugees. Imagine if what we saw in the floods, um, the destruction in the Bahamas, the fires here in California, every couple months, we can't live that way. My responsibility is to protect life and I will never compromise on that. We are almost out of time. We'd like to end with something a little lighter than Green New Deal. Uh, but <laughs> no, that's important. It's super ending, important. But, you know, yeah. the ending of human civilization. You, uh, <laughs> we see the piano in the corner. You're really into yeah. jazz. Uh, you're also an avid photographer. When's the last yeah. time you picked up a camera? And where do you go out and shoot? Now that it's my phone, it's mostly, uh, and thanks to Instagram, I've rediscovered love of photography. It's mostly through my Samsung that I take photographs. But I, I do take a, a, around uh, every so often. My dad's a really skilled photographer, so I'll go out with him sometimes we'll photograph on the beach we'll uh, look at you know Los Angeles is so dramatic at night when it lays out like a bed of jewels twilight in LA when the sky is still orange over the Pacific and the lights are coming up over this amazing basin it is probably the most beautiful place on earth to shoot and I can't take enough photos there so um, to me you know there is something around every corner and as mayor I get to be on the stage I get to have that perspective behind the scenes and I love showing that to my Los Angeles and seeing my Los Angeles react. All right, well, on that poetic note, Mary Garcetti, thank you so much for taking time thank to talk. You. It's a real pleasure. Great to have you in L.A. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer this week is Jeremy Siegel, and our engineers are Seal Muller and Rob Spate. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And a quick plug for my upcoming live event with former Governor Jerry Brown. We'll be talking about the 2020 race and lessons from his own career in politics. It's on Monday, January 13th in San Francisco, and you can get tickets at kqed.org slash events. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next year, everybody. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.